Hi everyone, welcome back to Bookish. My guest this week is the novelist Danzi Senna. I was so excited to sit down and talk to Danzi. We'd met at dinner a few months earlier and I just thought she was so interesting and provocative and I then went off and read her latest novel, New People, and laughed and winced and marveled at her beautiful, elegant, elegant prose. Danzi is a novelist and an essayist. Her first work, Caucasia, was translated into 10 languages and won multiple awards. She's won the Whiting Award. She's written three novels, a memoir and a short story collection, and numerous essays on gender, race, and motherhood. Her work has appeared in The New Yorker, Vogue and the New York Times. She's the mother of boys and is also professor of USC. So pretty humbling all round. But on top of that is just a cool, interesting, wonderful woman. And I really loved this juicy conversation that we had. It just felt like exactly what I want this podcast to be, to be able to dive deep into books and talk about other ones, not just the five that matter to you, but be able to reference other ones that you've read and ones that occurred to us in the spur of the moment. So I adored this interview. I hope you guys do too. Danzi, thank you so much for doing this. I'm so glad that you have. I'm so glad to have you here and to be sitting in the South Pasadena Library. Um, I was saying that my blood pressure just dropped the minute I walk in here. I think that's my response to libraries in general, actually. Yeah. I think I don't, I don't know about you, but my education was so much, so much time was spent in libraries that I'm like, I just feel peaceful. Yeah. Here. I feel like it's, it's dedicated to something that I recognize and there's a unanimous yeah. decision to like not have a phone and not conduct a conversation and, it feels very restorative to me to walk into it. Yeah. And this tree outside is like one of my favorite trees. It's so beautiful. Well, you just told me you finished your last novel. This it? room that we're sitting in, this conference room, I finished new people in. That's and so I thought this would be a good amazing. place to talk. Um, I love it. Yeah. I, I have a very hard time focusing at home mm-hmm. because it's domesticity, you know, and as a woman, like it, you just think of everything you're supposed to be mm-hmm. doing. And so... I've written uh, many of my books in libraries, mm. and um, so I, I came for the last stretch up and would um, reserve this room that we're in, this conference room on the second floor, for because you can only reserve it for an hour, mm-hmm. and like I was sort of so sick of working on it, but it, I knew if I gave myself just that hour every uh-huh. day for the last editing and uh-huh. stuff, this would be safe to just come and focus. Uh-huh. And um, and so you would do it in an hour at a time. Well, just you at the end. And renew it? Okay. No, I would just do an hour. I always find I I have to work in like just clearly at the scariest parts of my work. Mm-hmm. I have to only have like an hour or two with the really? work, or it kind of brings me into a bad place. Yeah. Is that just in the edit or in the writing? In the writing, uh, the first draft, I have that. And then at the very last part. And then there's a sort of magic middle part when I've written the first draft and I'm filling in and I'm in love with the book and it's, I can work for hours and hours. And then the end when I'm anxious and sort of have read it too many times and I don't want to over edit, Uh I do it in limited. That seems so smart. How did you arrive at knowing that? How did you know that you could only work in an hour at a time? Just brutal experience yeah and I think um knowing it it was like giving myself permission that that's how I work because you read the descriptions of writers of Mm -hmm. the past and like they would go in and it was often men like Mm -hmm. they go in from seven in the morning till 
three in the afternoon, then they fix themselves a drink. And it's like, it didn't fit with my lifestyle, my attention span, my psychological portrait. Like I needed, and so I wrote like my second novel in a cafe in Brooklyn where I had to park my car at a meter for two hours. Mm -hmm. And if I didn't leave the book after two hours, I would get a really big ticket. Uh And it allowed me... Like the boundary made me feel freer rather yeah. than than more, you know, oppressed by that. It's so interesting, isn't it? I wonder whether a friend of mine says this that motherhood made her more productive than yeah. anything else, just because the conf- confines are so so huge. You're either paying a nanny, which is you know prohibitive, or yeah. you're working during a nap, or your kids are at school. And let's be honest, by the time you've cleaned up the house, hit yeah. the grocery store, and I don't know, done a sit up then yeah. it's time to go back again. Like it's, I know. I would love to hear a bunch of like uh, women writers who are mothers talk about how they manage time. How they manage time, yeah. Because I think the day is over before you've even sat down. Yeah. So that friction, and you, you feel like you're trying to save your own life by mm. writing mm. in a way that I didn't before I had kids. Mm. And that I was trying to kind of protect something that was under threat, <laughs> like not to suggest anything negative about no, motherhood. No, I think that's I think that's true and really moving. I think it's really really true. I think it's there is the stakes are so much higher, not just because the time is limited, but one's sense of self is so impinged upon. Not to mention refashioned in the presence of children, particularly young children, I find. I don't yeah. know, yours are a little older than mine. But. Yeah, mine are a little bit older, but it, it doesn't change it. And I wrote um, my story collection and a memoir and new people. Those were the books. Did, those the only books? Yeah, those are the books I wrote with children. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I was sort of more productive in a funny way, but mm-hmm. I'm still a slow writer. Like, I'm still, I write... I take a long time to finish things because I have that horrible perfectionist impulse to like. Is work that true something. though? I mean, I read. You know, you, I think I read somewhere new people took four years to write. No, no? new people didn't take four um, years. The book I wrote before new people that I that put you didn't in put the aside. Door, yeah, that right. was the one that I worked on and worked on and worked on, and then I went out actually in the midst of, and I had a book contract, and I felt like you know, I just couldn't finish this mm-hmm. book. And it was written, it was under like the pressure of moving a lot, right. motherhood, children, small children, mm-hmm. like the ages of yours. And you know how your tension span gets too. Yes. I mean, you can't finish a sentence no. or a thought. It's always being interrupted. And I um, had this book that was just like this battered object that mm-hmm. I was carrying from home to home with kids, babies. And it was like, the depressive object of my life because I could not finish it. And I couldn't even get a sense of what, you know, like I kept abandoning plot lines and sort of couldn't, it was aborted feeling. And, um, I was just sort of feeling like I was going to have to go into the witness protection program because I owed my publisher money. <laughs> and um, I went out with my friend, Juno Diaz actually. And oh, he, wow. um, he had worked under a, with the same publisher under a contract and like nearly kind of lost his mind and took forever. And, and he was sort of, we were talking about how you have to feel free again Mm. when you have sort of a, some reputation as a writer and you've published and become defined Mm -hmm. in a certain way. And he was saying like, he, he had just reread my first book and was saying that like, there's so much like anger and craziness in that book that nobody ever talks about and, like how I should just let myself go to the crazy. Mm. And I remember thinking like I had this thread of a beginning of something really crazy and I just sort of allowed myself to secretly write that and didn't think it was going to sort of be published even. Mm-hmm. I just was writing it to try to remember what it was to mm-hmm. like have pleasure writing mm, lovely, yeah. and to amuse myself alone and just make myself laugh and sort of the sort of dirty pleasure of that book. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then it was finished in six months and wow. I, I called my publisher and said like, I have good news and bad news. <laughs> the book you bought is in a drawer and right. unfinished. And yeah. then I, I said like, I have this other book that, I want to share with you. So then I would argue you're not a slow writer. Well, yeah, maybe I can be. Maybe you it's can just, be if you're, but if, but if I, you're stymied. Much, and I've not... decided now that I, I don't ever want to spend that long. I want to write all my 
books in a blast. <laughs> I just feel like you're, you're aware at a certain age that you don't have that much time yeah. and your brain is not going to always be as alive as yeah, it is. And, and you sure. just, I, I liked what happened with this book, which was that the momentum, I didn't pause to question my decisions. Mm-hmm. I just let the momentum of the story kind of pull me to the end. Mm-hmm. And then I just, you know, filled in and stuff, but there was a kind of, um, I wrote it sort of to be read in one sitting mm. and in the spirit of that, like wrote it really. I get that. Blast. I read it in two. So yeah, yeah or so two mission sitting, but like kind yeah. of getting into that. Yeah. Propulsive. Thing. Are you a fast reader? Um, now I'm, if I read in the morning, I am, if I read at night now, it's, mm-hmm. I fall asleep. Yeah. So I, I really become more of a daytime reader, mm-hmm. which is really luxurious. Isn't, isn't it? It feels it's the best. Decadent. It yeah. feels like it does. To me, it feels as decadent as like deciding to watch a movie when or the martini sun's out at or noon. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't agree more. And um, yet, so necessary. Increasingly, yeah. I I've, I think we talked about this when you and I met at dinner that time. I feel like more and more in this world that we're in, in this political climate, in this you know, insidious world of social media that to step out of the rat race, to to lie down on one's bed and pick up a novel, particularly a novel, seems to me the most radical political act you could do in this That's moment. That's so interesting you say that because that was something I was thinking a lot about because everybody's so outraged on Twitter all the time yeah. and sort of throwing out these thoughts about things that of course you know are sort of obvious and everybody agrees with you and i was been thinking like the react the my resistance to trump is to go deep mm-hmm. and to read something and sustain my brain mm-hmm. and my thoughts mm-hmm. like protection against sort of twitter dumb and all of that is and i feel like the novel has become this really necessary um protection for our brains and our souls i feel that i totally feel that my new year's resolution was to get off twitter and instagram so i deleted them both from my phone and i have felt almost immediately restored um concentration Hmm. and really restored despite what I said earlier about being anxious a restored sense of self-esteem that I did not know was being eroded by it but more importantly I feel inoculated against that's such a good word for it by by immersing more in books I've read it's what end of first of February today I've read 10 novels this year already now that's five more than I'd read last year no question it literally doubled and it's not it's not because I have so much more time it's that I have so much more willingness to immerse and I think the Mm. Twitter Instagram thing makes one so breathless and so ready for the the quick fix whereas it reshapes your brain yeah I mean what your brain needs prolongs I think it it asks you to stretch out and elongate and Mm. suspend your judgment until you've reached 300 pages in or whatever so I'm, um, I love that that's exactly how I'm feeling my uh, what's sort of keeps me from reading as much as I want to is that I've started teaching. Right. <laughs> and so I'm reading in preparation to teach. At USC, right? Yeah. yeah. I'm on the faculty there now. Mm-hmm. And it's a really different way of... Last year, I had the whole year off and I read for pleasure. Mm. And I was, you know, really missing that this mm-hmm. year because I was reading sort of just to edify and right. discuss. And right. it was a different... And I kind of love the thing of just... I don't know, just kind of that. I love when I'm so involved in a book that I am irritated, like, by the sight of my family. Yes, isn't it the best? <laughs> and you're like, can you just you let me finish, just this, let chapter? finish this chapter? Yeah. Seriously, no, I agree. I and totally that's agree. just been great when that happens. But it seems like this year has been off to a less... Uh, I, I'm jealous that it's, you've been reading It's January. Like no, we're, we've all I'm impressed. How easy was it to come up with the books? Were, were, were there ones that were immediate, the five? Were there ones that oh, you the to five. for them? I'm trying to remember the five the now. Five you have to show me. We have The Easter Parade by oh, Richard Yates. We have Quicksand by Nella Larson. We have The Talented Mr. Ripley by Patricia Highsmith. Giovanni's Room, James Baldwin, and A Handful of Dust, Evelyn Wall. Yeah, so. those are like, those are sort of desert island books. Yep. So it wasn't hard to think of All them. Right. And um, Which one chronologically, Matt, was, was the, which is the one that 
you started with or that felt formative at, at its earliest stage? Um, Giovanni's room I read in high school. Uh-huh. And who gave it to you? My know? mother gave uh-huh. me all my books. Really? And would just, you know, I went to subpar public schools and um, she's a poet, my mother, uh-huh. and sort of my first teacher in many ways about how to be a woman and a writer. Uh-huh. She's a very, you know, serious writer. Uh-huh. And this was a single mother with three kids. And wow. my like earliest memories of you know, writing is her on the Olivetti, like uh-huh. typing in a room and screaming at us to shut up. <laughs> and I really cherish those memories now that I have children. Yeah, um, and she wrote as if she was trying to save her own life right. and did, you know, and I think gave me that. And she would give me books, both my sister and I and my brother. Um, we were just surrounded by books. Mm-hmm. And she gave me well, I read The Bluest Eye by mm. Toni Morrison when I was 10. Wow. I mean, she, like, there wasn't sort of that feeling of dumbing it down sure. for children. And sure. we were expected to, like, engage with these really big ideas. And Giovanni's Room was, like, you know, about a, written by James Baldwin. He was just so ahead of his time and was about, you know, a white American in Europe passing as straight. Mm. I mean, like, nobody's doing that now. Like we're supposed to write in our lane, stay Mm -hmm. in our lane. And James Baldwin was so liberated and sort of passionate as a writer. And it's such a short novel. Mm -hmm. I love short novels. Mm -hmm. They're my favorites where it's like 200 pages or less. Mm -hmm. Um, And it just is like a, a sort of, unsparing look at sort of the cost of shame and mm. concealment and um but I, I loved it in high school mm-hmm. and and loved him as a writer mm-hmm. so and I, I did not know the the book to my shame so I, oh. I was that's reading. your next book it is my <laughs> yeah. next book yeah. well it's funny that you say that because I just finished The Bluest Eye which I oh my n- God. never read before again astonishingly and I realised you know it's sort of high school standard or, or at least obligatory mandatory I'm wondering level, if yeah. it is because it's got all that incest in it yeah I mean I can't believe we were passing it around my fifth grade mm-hmm. like that's really yeah because I, 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 I think know. when I brought it up to people here they've gone like oh yeah I haven't read that since high school oh, a few okay. people have, so maybe... have referenced it having been brought up in whitest England right. you know there was no reference to any African American literature hmm. whatsoever uh, African literature nothing hmm. I, I, my entire education was, right. was straight white men basically so Unsurprisingly, uh, I hadn't heard of Giovanni's Room, and I was so fascinated by it. Um, obviously, I know James Baldwin, but I I didn't know that he'd written an entire novel about white about white people. There yeah, was not a black person. Isn't that amazing? In it, yeah. And it's a really and it's like I I, I don't remember if it's one hundred and eighty pages. It's really short and yeah. just beautiful. And and you know from what I read, you know, published in nineteen fifty six, pretty pretty ahead of its time, as you say, and. Yeah about a man who goes to France was because his fiance has gone away and goes and has an affair with a guy mm. in a bar, Giovanni. Giovanni, yeah. Um, yeah, and then and then the girlfriend comes back and he tries to get make that work and it's uh, yeah. but it clearly isn't and she, she she calls him out on it from again from yeah. what I was reading about the novel. And I was really struck by this idea of passing as straight and also so the passing of straight was one thing I was struck by. The other thing was the American in Europe, which mm. I think is such a... The trope. Yeah, yeah. totally. And and I'm really interested by it. Henry James is a favorite of mine, and listeners of this podcast know, because I did I I had my producer interview me for season one. So oh, nice. I picked my fav- five books and went on at length about Portrait of a Lady, which so I won't do it again now. But that this idea of, of these um, innocent Americans mm-hmm. in old... Europe, I think is a really persuasive one and yet also could do with some picking apart now. Do you know what I mean? Yes. It, feels, it feels a little outdated maybe in the global world that we live in and yet entirely right for a 1956 yeah. novel. I do think that's true. I mean, I lived in Europe you said you a were few in years France. ago yeah. and um, was very aware of how much that dynamic had changed. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think for him as a black American, Europe had a whole other meaning. Mm-hmm. Like people really did go into exile. Mm-hmm. A lot of the, the Harlem Renaissance writers mm-hmm. went there to he wrote be free. France, right? Yeah. I think he wrote it he, wrote it, he finished it in Turkey, oh, in Istanbul, he? Oh, actually. Wow. 
but in you know he was living in France for a really long mm-hmm. time, and it's dedicated. My sister's name is Lucian, and uh-huh. it's dedicated to someone I think was his lover oh, named really? Lucian. Oh, yeah, really? but he. Um, there has been a greater sort of acceptance of the sort of wide range of black voices, American voices mm-hmm. in France. It's like famously yes. a place for exile and freedom. But but when I was living there four years ago, I was aware that it was no longer that. Really? Were you that, in Paris? Yeah. yeah. And it was kind of... It felt very dusty mm. and, and sort of like it hadn't evolved right. as a city mm-hmm. and that they were not aware of their own racism in a really profound way. Sure. And there was true. like England actually felt like light years ahead yeah. of France. Mm-hmm. And it felt like to their detriment, they had marginalized every other culture right. because it was keeping them from having like, you know, that idea of hybrid vigor yeah. that England had. Sure. And like there, they were kind of dying in the shadow of the Louvre or something. Yeah. No, I <laughs> With agree. like the Louvre and McDonald's yes. and between the Even two. Not much else. I agree. I think I feel that way about Paris. I love it and I long for it and I long to take my kids there and I'm so deeply grateful I'm not living there or raising yeah. my children there. I think it is living in a museum and, yeah. and, and living with monuments to things we don't necessarily want to memorialize anymore. So I'm not sure. I think it can be saved by, you know, the people in the outskirts yeah i think that if they allow for that to infiltrate Mm -hmm. and don't you know keep their culture so under glass yeah that it could be saved in the way that i think england has been like the lifeblood of england is all those immigrant cultures totally i mean i think architecture has a lot to do with this i mean Mm. london literally is a higgledy-piggledy Charles Dickens cottage next to a 1970s high-rise full mm. of Pakistani immigrants. I mean, it's, yeah. it, there is something about the architecture of London that lends itself. There's not. This is not to say that there isn't hideous ghettoizing. That no, but there. I mean, obviously there. But yeah, it but does it's, feel it's, more. Um, however awkwardly integrated yeah. in Paris and the Bonnier. For sure. I mean, I lived in England for a year too, and I've spent a lot of time there because my sister moved there 25 years ago and, and we, I visit her often. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, it's, it's like a totally different experience mm-hmm. in terms of, especially for someone who thinks about race and identity. Like I couldn't believe the sort of level of the conversation in France. Really? I was shocked. In what I mean, way? like the headscarf ban. It right. was like, are you, uh, the, the sort of feminist intellectuals mm-hmm. explaining to me why that was necessary. That's wow. Shocking wow. to me. Fascinating. That that was their level of feminism. Right. Still too. I'm struck by do you, um, you, I'm sure you've read about or heard about this book that in France is called Chanson Douce and in England I think is called Lullaby. Uh, by a woman called Leila Slimani. Oh, I have heard of her. It. Yeah. Um, but I, I think I'm right in saying she's, I know she's North African, possibly Algerian. I, I, I'd have to check that. But she's written this novel that just won the Prix Goncourt, and it, and it and I, I read it. It was one of the novels I read this January because I was fascinated by the furore, and, and it, it felt maybe like it was going to be a little more slight than the kind of, literary fiction I'm usually drawn to but at the same time it's winning all these prizes so I figured why not and it's about a woman who is North African who has a white nanny and hmm. this is about oh that. I've got to read this and the first line is the baby is dead so it's oh pretty um I've I don't I haven't given anything away because that's the first line so so you oh go from God. that I've got to read it it's, yeah. it's interesting it's interesting it's provocative it doesn't actually go anywhere that I think is profound or revelatory in any way do you know what I mean yeah but I feel like it at least initiates an interesting point of Mm. view an interesting conversation I've listened to her interviewed and New Yorker did a profile on her she's a very interesting woman and I mean I hate to say this but actually more articulate in person than the book is Hmm. do you know what I mean yeah she's good at talking about it exactly it's why I despise going to movies and going to the Q&A afterwards I feel like I know that director will seduce me into believing I saw a great movie and I fucking (laughs) didn't like put it on the screen you don't get to tell me about it afterwards and I slightly feel that way about Mm. this book because you know she's been offered um, the position of Minister of Culture in Mm. France based on this one novel I think she published one more prior to it and it's really in there hunger to anoint somebody of color 
Uh, well, at least they're a, at that stage. Exactly. That's, that's good. It, yeah. I, I agree, and I and I defer to it and think, hallelujah, great, yeah. better this than the alternative. But wow, how nascent is this movement there that yeah. it takes one book about the hierarchy being inverted and really not much else happens. Mm. It's for this, for her to become, you know, literally minister of culture. She's turned the appointment down because she says, I don't want to have to toe the line and I want to be able to get drunk at cocktail parties. And no, not, good for her. Not watch my I like that she much did language. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, but I mean, I, um, it's funny. It, you said it's a short novel too. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, I, I mean, The Stranger I could have put on here too. Right. You know, and Marguerite Duras. Like I think the French really perfected a certain kind of a short, short novel, yeah. existential novel. Yeah. Um, What's the next one on the list that, that matters? That matters not, they all matter, but that chronologically, or which is the next one? Yeah, well, I would say Quicksand by Nella Larson. Um, I read both of her two novels in college. Passing and is the other one. Passing and, and Quicksand, mm-hmm. and they've just reprinted Passing, but they really need to do one of Quicksand. And Maybe you need to write Actually, well, I wrote the introduction to Quicksand in France. Oh, did and you? And the French, they re- republished it in France, or published it for the first time in France, oh, and really? I wrote the introduction because that's the one of the two novels that doesn't get as much attention. Interesting, yeah. And it is so brilliant. Mm. Tell me why. Why did um, it matter to you? Well, I had, you know, grown up biracial, sort of appearing to look white to the world and having, you know, a very sort of strong sense of my black identity. And her characters are so modern in the way that they grapple with race. And there are two novels about biracial and mixed race women because she was she was she biracial. was biracial she was danish yeah. and danish and american right yeah and caribbean american oh, right. but grew up here and and they were just so um radical to me in the way that i saw myself as part of a long tradition for one sure. thing i saw myself in a kind of context and everything i had struggled with identity wise was there in her books, mm-hmm. even though I was reading them in the 90s mm-hmm. and she was writing them in the 20s. Yeah. And they were like, and they, in a way that's sad that it was the same struggle, sure. but in a way it was sort of strangely comforting. Okay. And I would say she was the greatest like literary influence on me. Really? She's unapologetically, her character, her female characters are unapologetically screwed up uh-huh. and they are non-redemptive novels Uh they're like they go against everything you're supposed to write as a woman Uh and they're nothing is sacred everyone is it's safe for like tearing apart Uh and turning over sort of these real sacred ideas of community and female bonding they're just really ahead of even our time in Uh some ways um Mm -hmm. and she only wrote two novels and had a very sad difficult life and um so I just cherish that book in particular mm. um and it's got the most amazing ending of uh, like I don't think I don't know if I'd be giving it away to say share it share it. but it's like this character has ended up trying to find a home she's mm-hmm. homeless you know her whole life racially mm-hmm. in, in all sorts of sense and she's keep looking for a racial and kind of tribal home mm-hmm. and she ends up in the worst possible situation of marrying this sort of repulsive minister in the south and she's mm-hmm. this very intellectual worldly woman and she in her desperation to find a home she goes and marries him and starts having babies mm-hmm. And goes into this kind of fog of motherhood, and it's the most horrifying description of motherhood. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. I love being a mother, but this is like goes to the dark side. Yeah, but the best people do. The, Rachel Cusk is a favorite oh, for me this too. reason. Oh, yeah, yeah, me yeah. too. Me yeah. too. And, um, and the, the, you see her like having baby upon baby mm. and then coming out of the fog of it and realizing with horror what she's done right. and planning her escape and like the last few lines are like the horror of realizing she's pregnant again no. and it's like it just ends no with her like pregnant again yes and it's like a horror movie ending yeah. but about like the entrapped sense of women and yeah. and like five babies or something she prepares to have her fifth baby and you just realize like she's extinguished herself yeah and it's just an it's an incredibly um, just uncompromising book, yeah. and I can't believe she wrote it when she wrote yeah. it. 
that she dared to write that. It's reminding me, for maybe just thematically, of that amazing Kate um, Chopin book, the The Awakening. That is such a good. Yes, which is, I love that novel. Which is that that yeah. same thing at the end where she just walks into the ocean. That's her only out of yeah. this marriage, this right. hideous situation that she's found herself yeah. in. This, and it's the same. You know, it's this again sort of heartbreaking Emma Bovary trope of yes. women that the only that their their only exit is is that it's just self self extinguishing be it by having the fifth baby or walking into the ocean or taking arsenic or whatever it is it's like exactly that's that's right that that is a really good parallel yeah. book text i mean that would be a great class on like Books right. about motherhood, right? Motherhood and what it yeah. fucking does to you. I mean, I, I think <laughs> Rachel Cusk would have to be a part of that. She, uh, yeah, she's really Isn't she wonderful? I, that's actually funny you mention her because she's someone I've been reading a lot of lately. And I don't know when her third part of that trilogy is coming so out. I only read the last one. Transit. Is that the, yeah. So I read the out, that Outline and tra- no, Outline. Outline is Greece. Okay, yeah. so I need Transit, transit in England next. and okay. it's amazing. Oh, great. She's, a, she's such a funny writer. Like, I found her books hilarious mm. in this very kind of quiet way. Yeah. And, um... I just like how she just stays in the blood i haven't got a better word for it than that yeah. but like she will stay with the most uncomfortable unerring truth about her experience her you know fictionalized experience but but will write the most unappealing fucking side of herself the bit about motherhood that you just don't want to own or exactly the bit about divorce marriage or, or, freedom yeah. or any of that and i i I love her for that. Yeah, and then you know that, that, like, when someone writes like that, they've paid some kind of cost and they've earned whatever they're doing. Like, I, that's what I dislike is when you feel that someone has not earned. Yeah. That that you know they're sort of skating on the surface, and she she really feels like she goes deep. I mean, she reminds me a little bit of um, Lydia Davis. I don't know. Have you read Lydia Davis? But who I love, but I felt like Rachel Cusk. Lydia Davis is famous for her short, short, short stories. Yeah. Or like a paragraph. Mm. Um, and she's just so playful oh, and amazing and you'll love her. Yeah. But, um, but I did feel like there was the same absurdist quality to the Rachel Cusk, but it went really dark and deep. Right. So I was really excited yeah. when I read her. Yeah, me too. I'm going to write down tra- transit in transit. No, just transit. Well, that's the, the second Rachel Cusk yeah, book. That's yeah, that's And I th- know there's a third with that trilogy that um, um, is going to come out at some point. Yeah, but I don't well, know. I'll catch up with number two. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This book I saw on your list and it just made my heart swell. The Easter Parade. Oh, my God. Because on my, um, when I did this, uh, Revolutionary Road is one of my five. I couldn't decide between the two, two, two. That scene in Revolutionary Road at the play at the oh, beginning. and Petrified Forest. Just oh, the worst, isn't it? He. I, and the other book I would say is a really good book, and I can't remember the title, is The Biography of Richard Yates. Oh, that was uh, probably the last book that made me cry. Oh, is it? If I was going to say, yes. you know, on your list. Which one is it? It's that called like a, not a brutal honesty or something like, I can't remember the title of the biography of Richard no, Yates, but it is it so either. good. Do you know what was fun was when I was reading about this, I put the Easter Parade back by the bed because I realized I haven't read it. Oh I my read God. everything oh, else wow. by him. I right. own it. And it's part of the wallpaper, if you like, of my bookcase. Yeah. You know, where you just, your yeah. eyes skates across it. And so when I saw it on your list, I ran to pull it out and was like, oh, fun. Let me just see what Dan's is. And I got six pages in and was like, I've never read this. I bought this and I never read it. So thank Great. you because it's by the bed. Oh to my read. God, you're going to love it. I know I'm going to love it. I think we have the same taste. I think so. I, feel like- <laughs> I know. I'm feeling yeah. a kindred. Um, you know what was fun reading this? And I share this as a, as a you know, wannabe writer too is that Yates, at his most successful, never sold more than 12,000 copies. 
in you a hardback. I love that. Isn't that? Well, I was just asked on a panel I just did, um, like, do you check your Goodreads or Amazon ratings? And I never, yeah. ever look at those. Oh, good. And I thought, like, I'm not writing for committee, and I'm not writing to be a bestseller, because mm. the best books I've read were not bestsellers. We were, like, right? So I'm not writing to sell to the widest, yeah. you know, yeah. group of Americans, like, that's not my goal in life. Yeah. And, and, and you know, some of the writers I love the most, their least successful books were the ones I liked the yeah. most. And the Easter Parade, like, people didn't get that book. No, not at all. At all. Well, well although it was it was his comeback from what I've read after he... he from his... Um, one of his many his nervous disaster. breakdowns. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Alcoholic. Um, and he surprised everyone with producing it. And it came, you know, he sort of handed it... It sounds not dissimilar to your... your showing up with new people in your hand going, hi, good news. And oh, yeah, yeah, I yeah. Um, I, I gather he, he he knocked this out in a year and sort of blew everyone really? away with it. Yeah. I must know that from the biography, but it was... Um, I, I love both of those books of When his. did you come to it? How did you come to it? Who brought you here? I think it was... <laughs> My husband uh-huh. gave it to me. Um, had you read Yeats I had before? read him, a lot of him, and mm-hmm. I loved him. And I had read Revolutionary Road and several of his short stories. And I think, yeah, my husband said that's his. this is his best book. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't heard of it or read it. Uh-huh. So I read it maybe 10 years ago. Uh-huh. And it was just that it was also, I, I tend to like that sort of non-redemptive yeah. story, but... I was I had spent 10 years in New York really kind of single and I had hit some really dark places in those years mm-hmm. and sort of without a home mm-hmm. I was really trying to figure out where I belonged in sort of domestic life and romantic life and um and I mean he like this man wrote about that female experience mm-hmm. with such care mm-hmm. and poignancy and it just, and then the two sisters in it are the sort of never really recover from their parents' divorce. Mm-hmm. And that, like, I feel in my family that we've all three siblings have literally spent these decades, like, nobody has really recovered really? from our parents' divorce. How old were you when they divorced? Um, they started the separation, I think, when I was like five. Mm-hmm. And, um, they divorced when I was about eight, right. but it was a cataclysmic, mm-hmm. you know, war. Yeah. And the reverberations, he just describes the reverberations of it on these two women and how it affects them differently. Mm-hmm. And it's just amazing. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't sort of stop. It keeps pushing the pain mm-hmm. meter mm-hmm. until you, you're you done with the book and it's not relented and uh-huh. it's really... I don't know. I just felt that brutal kind of honesty of his. I agree. I think it's what I felt too. And it was also, particularly in Revolutionary Road, but but in Lies and Love and, you know, any of his, any of his work really, the brutalness of domesticity yes. is so wonderful. Mm-hmm. This coexistence of who you think your best self could be, your idealized version that... You know, you might be slumming it as a copywriter, but in your head, you're really writing those novels, or you, you know, and then then slammed up against the just tawdriness of getting kids fed and paying yeah. bills, and you know, a car breaking down, or a, a, and the dreams that you kind yeah, of crush, and these, these sort of that are crushed by for the men dreams. and the women. Yes, yeah. exactly, and it's there's no. Interestingly, for a man that was writing in the 50s and that was writing completely sort of madmen stuff, it, there doesn't seem to be a patriarchy at play no. there. It's just, there's just these sensibilities that dare to hope over and over yeah. about who they might be. Mm. And I know, isn't it like a cry talking about it? Because it, because you do read it going, well, so so what are you telling me, Richard Yates? Should I not have the hope? Should I just I know. be in the domestic? And I love that he won't tell you. And he won't yeah, tell you. He doesn't because he doesn't know come either. down. And I mean his the book about his life um has the most poignant story in it about how, you know, he, he basically would 
go on a alcoholic bender yeah. from like late morning until he passed out. But he had like these two productive hours that he would work wow. from eight to 10 in the morning or something. And then he'd begin the drinking and wow. he just, you know, really lived on the edge and a way that was like, I used to go to Breadloaf, Breadloaf writers conference. I still go sometimes. And, you know, there's famous stories about his going into like oh, the right. DTs and right. stuff, but he, um, Toward the end of his life, he was living in sort of a crappy apartment complex, and um, it was filthy, and his life was, he was in terrible health. And um, when he died, uh, the only thing that was pristine that they found was his new manuscript in the freezer. No. And it was so poignant to me that, like, that was the one thing he kept kept safe in his life was, like, the art yeah. and he just protected that till the very end like that old thing where you put your manuscript in the freezer in case beautiful. there's a beautiful yeah beautiful and so it was just so his life was really moving to yeah. me even though he was probably a monster and certain people's lives he, yeah. was, he was a brilliant artist I feel like that's so part of the conversation at the moment is do you get to be a monster and do we get to revere your art you yeah. know and and uh we would have to erase a lot of great artists to be wouldn't we? pure. I, I agree. Yeah. I feel like no. I I mean I'm I feel not very... down with these these you know out of the fay bonfires we're lighting at the moment. I'm, I'm not either. I'm really not down I with find this. it very frightening. Yeah, very frightening. And social media being a huge part of it. Right, which is why um, I have to say absenting myself from it has felt like. Uh, one of the greatest acts of self-care I've pulled off in a long time. (laughs) (laughs) I know exactly what you mean. Exactly. I I was like realizing my, my health as a writer has been, and my ability to write has been about filtering Mm. and like not reading all the reviews, not taking like one of the great things about living in LA too, is that you don't get the sort of peripheral writerly, gossip constantly right. Interesting. if you're a novelist right. if you're a screenwriter you probably do but I, I think um, not if you live in Malibu it's perfect if you oh, live right. where I live on the top of a cliff you can perfect. <laughs> switch it all off I tell you yeah and, and so I sort of like have filtered out so much even before sort of social media became so much a part of mm-hmm. our cluttering and every time I would publish a book it was like I knew that my goal now was to protect the next book uh-huh. and protect my freedom of thought yes. and yes. that I could imagine. And so taking in all that stuff feels like really dangerous yeah. to my imagination, right. actually. Right, counter to creativity altogether, I would think. Yeah. yeah. Um, your next book, The Talented Mr. Ripley, I'm going there next. You don't have to. We have that and a handful of dust. So whichever one you want to talk about next. Oh, um, I just, uh, the, I'm rereading The Talented Mr. Ripley right now. Oh, you are? But I, because um, I decided to teach it to my students, oh, actually. Fun. In a class on passing. Oh, so I'm not teaching just racial passing. I was teaching um, con artists mm-hmm. and uh-huh. grifters and also sort of straight passing a straight yeah and um oh, I, I, I mean Patricia Highsmith just sounds great. it's really been fun but Patricia Highsmith to me is another one of like Nella Larson one of those like just artists who's born free yeah. and original and who is just not in their own lane like mm-hmm. you know James Baldwin mm-hmm. and um, I love thrillers. Mm-hmm. I love books that have that same quality as a great thriller. Mm-hmm. And um, that book is so taut and crazy. And she goes so deep into this sort of sociopath yeah. point of view. Yeah. And um, I just think it's an amazing work. I, I love her writing in general. When did you come to her? Do you remember? Patricia Highsmith must have been. In my 20s, mm-hmm. I think. I don't think I read her in college, and she was kind of a revelation. Had you seen the movie before you read the book? Oh, yeah. I read the book first. No, right. I read the book read first, the book because it was yeah. before the movie. And No, no, no. I know, yeah. published in 1955. No, I mean, I... But... I uh, I know I read it before even that movie right. was made, before Matt Damon was a whisper on my <laughs> I'm so interested by it because I, I too, I'd read Ripley and had loved it and was so struck by this really seminal difference between them, which is that that the movie makes this a book about, makes this a story about loneliness. Mm. 
in a way, or, no, that was my interpretation. In the book or the movie? The movie felt oh, okay. that there was something, you know, whatever, Matt Damon, whoever, whatever that performance is. But, but I felt like the book is about sociopaths yeah there is I think you're right this is not and that's what's daring about it yes that it's not a desire to fit in that it is actually or class aspiration yeah there's something glassy and impermeable and not not as not as um, permeable to sort of facile psycho what am I trying to say? You don't get to just go, oh, poor lonely guy, desperate to yeah. fit in. The movie, to me, is renders him, uh, perhaps rightly for us to care about it, but much more sympathetic. When mm. we, we, to a degree, um, we are like him on the outside watching glorious Gwyneth Paltrow and Leggy Jude Law dance. Right. And we, like him, want to want a part of that we right. hunger for it too yeah, that's so interesting and I remember reading the book and feeling like no that is not because I saw the movie first and then right, remember right. going to wanting to see what the book right. was and feeling like no this is not what she's doing is as you say braver than that she yeah. is not offering an apology or well that was I mean and she's had a huge influence on me because I had a second novel that was horribly panned <laughs> after my first book I wrote this book Symptomatic right. and it was very influenced in a way by her. Oh, really? And kind of wanting to write this like sick horror humor book. Uh-huh. And it was like, uh, but I was writing about race uh-huh. in a kind of horror movie st- trope. Like uh-huh. it was a thriller about race, which now, you know, there's Get Out and like uh-huh. there is that genre uh-huh. now. But I was kind of writing where I didn't, I, I wanted to write about like sort of female mixed race sociopaths Uh and now I've come back to that with new people and like I feel like it's a return to my roots (laughs) but it's really like Patricia Highsmith is is a huge influence on me I I was gonna say because I by the way loved new people as I say devoured it in two readings I just couldn't get enough of it it's so um it's so deft and it's so funny and in, in, in its darkest way and yet you don't lose anything. You don't. You're, the joke isn't at the expense of anything ever. I feel like it's so earned. Always the humor. It's uh, it's what makes really good satire. But I I just loved it. I really oh, really loved you. it. But I when I saw Patricia Highsmith, I was thinking, how does this, how is this in Danzy's work? And I I was wondering whether the amorality of <laughs> of that character of of having a lead who kind of doesn't give a fuck who will try <laughs> anything great, yeah. once be it Scientology <laughs> or being a nanny for an afternoon right, right. or falling in love with a poet who doesn't even have a fucking name far less a body of work from right. like I I, I, yeah. I I sort of loved the you know it, it could be conceived of a sort of bumbling from one thing to the next except that Maria's far too focused and driven to sort of bumble into anything but there is something sociopathic about the being so inured to what the societal norms would dictate about yeah. showing up on time for your bride's you know for your wedding dress fitting right. or um, not shaking somebody's baby that you right. don't even know the fucking name of you know <laughs> like these felt like Yeah, I I love that way of describing it. And and I think it was written in that spirit of like, I don't give a fuck. And I'm going to write that book where it's like going to that part of me that isn't going to like kind of kowtow to the sort of the the next literary book I'm supposed right. to write the next mixed race heroine mm-hmm. yeah. this and that and I, I felt like I really needed to write my way to freedom mm-hmm. as an artist mm-hmm. and like she you know these people we've been talking about are kind of my beacon yeah. light where I think I have to channel this spirit right. of this person who who wrote so much from a spirit of of freedom and um just kind of rebelliousness right and I you know and I've had readings from new people where where the audience members have said like I really didn't like Maria and I really liked the book Mm. and I love that like I'm like thank god that we still have an audience (laughs) that cannot like the female protagonist Mm -hmm. and can handle it Mm -hmm. and still find like they don't need to identify Mm -hmm. they don't need to be as you've said about Patricia Highsmith like we don't need to sympathize Mm -hmm. we just have to be interested Mm -hmm. in her yeah and like so I wanted to do that and I think you know Highsmith is just 
so daring and that book these are all people I feel have written like way past our moment yes that's so interesting that's so interesting I think that's totally true do you think that of a handful of dust, Evelyn War? That's for sure in that same category. It belongs, right? Oh I my God! So I mean, I just reread it because I remembered it having such a huge impact on me. When, and when did you first read it? I think it was another one of those books that my mother gave me, maybe in college, or mm-hmm. I didn't read it for a class. And um, my grandmother is Anglo-Irish wow. and a sort of really, she was a real sharp satirist. Mm -hmm. She wrote three novels. Mm -hmm. She published three novels in Ireland. She worked with Yeats. She was a, you know, poet. I mean, not not a poet, but an actor who started this thing called the Poets Theater. And she was this amazing figure who I knew very well growing up. And we would visit her in Dublin. And Mm -hmm. she was sort of part of that world of Evelyn Waugh Mm -hmm. in a way. And um, she was girlfriend of someone who was a writer in uh-huh. England, Anthony Powell, and she. Oh yeah. Yeah. Wow. And she so I have this very Powell's strange, like, girlfriend? literary family, Incredible. and and uh, yeah, there's more to her. She was wild. Is she in Dance to Music of Time? Is she in one of those? Uh, no, but there's more to say about okay. my grandmother. Right. She's she's been written into some biographies of some wow. big men because she was very wild, uh-huh. and um, but she was very satirical. That sort of bitchy British humor mm, that's just favorite. scathing. I love it, <laughs> and and that book, you know, a handful of dust. Like he kills the child. Mm. I mean, he. And then that's like and a third says, of the way in. And she says, thank God. Yes. That I it mean, wasn't my lover. I know. It's, it's incredible. It's yeah. And he just, then the ending of that book with the guy trapped in the Amazon being read Dickens, like for the rest of his life by isn't this it, crazy man. Isn't it crazy? The what ending? a crazy book. So just for listeners who haven't read it, it's this uh, I'll praise it horribly, but uh, I think he's called Last Henry Last. I think is his yes, name. Yes, it's a great name. A great yeah. name, and he has this completely, you know, benighted marriage and and young boy, and he's the last to know that his wife's having an affair, and his wife <laughs> is having an affair with a man called John, and his son happens to be called John. I think he's called John Henry, a little sweet little boy, <laughs> sweet little boy who, as you say, a third of the way through, dies in a riding accident. I think, and they, he has um, to tell. He's horribly the wife, neglected. Yes. Oh, he's ignored. Nobody cares ignored about by this kid. the author and the audience and yeah. the parents, but ignored it's by like everybody. It's like such a send up of the British upper the class. The British upper class the and coldness. the way they were raised, yeah. exactly. And and he has to tell his wife, and she says, and he says, John is dead, and she says, and and he she nearly faints. I think she thinks he means her, her lover. lover. Yeah. And then he says, I mean John Henry, and she, in spite of herself, says, "Thank God." And it's yeah. an amazing moment in in I think in literature. That, in literature, yeah. That, 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 that he lets yeah. that happen. He lets that happen. Anyway, the marriage falls apart and he goes off to the Amazon, Henry Last, and ends up in the hands of this nutter in the Amazon who only wants to be read <laughs> Dickens. And so, and then a rescue mission is sent to find Henry and the nutter manages to sedate or put Henry in a coma or something. <laughs> I'm laughing and, just And hearing. hands him, and hands back, I think Henry's books or his glasses. Or so they all are going to think he's dead So they now. all go back to England, this, this search party with proof that Henry last is, is dead. And he's stuck in the Amazon reading Dickens for the rest of his life. I mean, I bastardized that horribly. But <laughs> no, I, that was brilliant. That's that like the great. rough sketch of it. And it was... I mean, I, I, I'm with you. I think it's devastating and daring and biting and sort of an eye-opener. I mean, it's a real... It was also written in 1934, which yeah. is... Yeah, I mean, I must have some soft spot for that era because of the right, writers yeah. I like seem to... They're but, all somewhere. Yeah, there, well, yeah. The, Lar, Nella Larson and... Um, and someone else on this is Giovanni. Well, Giovanni's room's later. That's but, 56. Yeah, but, but I have been weirdly watching a lot of movies from the 30s too, and it just fascinated by that time creatively. Yeah. But I, I mean, you must have read Waugh and England. I and- have. Well, I um, I went to Christchurch, Oxford, and so uh, Brideshead revisited, you know, half of which is set there. So I had the extraordinary experience of listening to Brideshead Revisited as read by Jeremy Irons, oh and I God. listened to it at Christchurch. So in my rooms, which were in college in the huge Tom Quad, the wow. amazing um, courtyard that I lived in for a year, 
and listen to it and then would walk out and go and, you know, cross the quad and go um, and get dinner in the crazy halls. And right. it was a very, very strange, very meta experience. <laughs> Truthfully, as I, uh, the older part of me looks back and thinks, I, I loved Brideshead and I loved it for deeply sentimental reasons. It's a very sentimental. Yes, it's totally different totally from different. The Handful of Dust. And, and feels, I loved it too. Yeah. But it had less of that craziness yes, of the other less, book. It's less acidic. It's fatter. It feels like yeah. it's And a little gentler and more... Yes. sort of poignancy in yes, it. Yes, exactly. The other one, it just never no, lets up on the satire. I, I mean, know. it's crazy. I am... Um... I was reminded of that. Uh, there's a brilliant Oscar Wilde quote that is, um, one must have a heart of stone to read the death of little Nell without laughing. <laughs> and I just was like... Oh my God, that is the, he's the great? best. He's it was so fucking good. And I was like, yes, exactly. That's, that's, the, those are words that Evelyn Waugh just lived by. I that's, think. yeah, and I think like, they're both, you know, that, that's the spirit of... Oscar Wilde, you know. Yeah, that. right. It's, it's both. Is is there's all the tragedy, and we have to be able to like. And the the funniest things are always sort of hinge on tragedy. Yeah, that's yes, exactly. And I have such some such a failure on the. No, no, no. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw in like five questions at you from the. Okay, these were I, not meant to be. Because I didn't. I was driving. These, <laughs> you are not to worry. These these are these are like follow up questions to throw at you if you feel like it. Um. I'm going to pick a few at random. What's the book or author you feel most guilty about not having read? I've never read Gravity's Rainbow and uh-huh. I've never read Infinite Jest. Yeah. And I don't know if I feel guilty, but I feel <laughs> that there are many people I love and respect for whom those books are seminal and I've started them both. Yeah, and but we've established just, your love of the short novel. They're never yeah, going to happen. Those two did not make the cut. And I, I remember like, yeah, just... I'd have to pretend at a dinner party that yeah. I'd read them, but I, I'm never going to. Yeah. But I have read shorter pieces of both of theirs. and um, Oh, I'm with you. That, that, yeah. Loved, you know, certain short stories and yeah. sh- the shortest of the pension novels. The shortest of the pension. The Crying I'm, of Lot. I've never done pension, so you're... you're ahead I'm ahead of you. Of you. Okay. Well, I haven't read those two. Is there a book that you expected to like but didn't? Hmm... I think the Ishiguro book never let me go. Oh, never let me go. Interesting. I just didn't. Mm-hmm. I was bored. Uh-huh. I, you know, and I actually loved one of his novels that everyone hated called The Unconsoled. Oh, I loved it. I loved that yeah, book. I loved it. And it got it beautiful. sort of, sort of so, so reviews. Yeah. And for me, Never Let Me Go, I just couldn't. I don't know what it was. It might have been timing. So much of reading is timing, but it wasn't. Didn't do it for me. Didn't do it for me. Yeah. Um, I think I liked it. What is the book that you know? This is my. This is the question. What's the book that gets you laid? What's the book that makes you look good when you recommend it? That you know makes you look that really makes interesting. Look really interesting. Oh my god. <laughs> Um, that's a funny question. I remember getting hit on on the subway in New York when I was reading Paul Auster. Oh, really? Which one? By like a hipster dude. Yeah, yeah. I was reading um, The Invention of Solitude, which is my favorite of his. Yeah. And it's a short memoir, Mm -hmm. and it's his only memoir, and I think it's brilliant. But I remember I actually was hit on, but under the bright glare of the New York City subway. I would say if you can get hit on under that light, you yeah. are you are now not ahead. so much. I would, but I was like twenty-seven. A lot of subcutaneous fat in my oh, face. God, we all need that. Um, last question: What uh, is a book that almost made the list but didn't? Hmm. What was a close contender? Well, you said maybe L'Etranger or The Stranger. Yeah, The Stranger, and also a book that I just recently taught. Um, and I never say his name right because I'm not Africana, but mm. um, Ketsy. Kutsy, yeah. Kutsy, yeah. James Disgrace. Kutsy. Yes. I love that book. It's wonderful. And it's just the, one of the most perfect yeah. books in terms of just the structure and the voice and yeah. how he tells that story in so many pages, you know, in yeah. such a short amount of pages was um, stunning. I loved it too. And then I read the one after it and I did not love it as much. Yeah, I haven't loved any of his books as much as that. Mm. But I sort of, I do like that 
all the sort of imperfection that when you look at a writer who's done it really sort of perfectly yeah, and then looking at the books that weren't so perfect mm-hmm. around them, it's sort of comforting as a writer. I agree. I agree. It's so true. Because you see you their see what intelligence they're yeah. and they're working through some idea and then it comes crystallizes. Yeah. And I'm sure it'll crystallize again. But like, I think some of the other books, you can see him working through it still. So true. It's such a lovely and forgiving way of looking at work too is to look yeah. at the body rather than yes. the sort of individual of it yeah I lied one last question is what you can only take one book to your desert island which is it can be one of these five or it can be another one. Oh my god I always have a hard time with that like and with people um like which person would I bring? <laughs> god oh, I would man. never bring a person are you kidding I don't know if I could bring you know I, I would say like sentimental value on um, one of the writers I loved so much when I was 13 mm-hmm. was Colette oh, and I wow. read all of her books uh-huh. from about 13 to 15 oh, and um, maybe I would bring Colette because it would remind me of like my youth yeah. but I mean I don't know if I'd even like her now but I would just hug it under just the have it. coconut tree you use it for shade if <laughs> yeah, nothing yeah, else yeah okay Danzy Senna thank you so much thank this you. was such a pleasure this was thank great you. thank you Thanks so much for listening to this week's interview. If you like the show, please write us a review on iTunes on the website. It really makes a difference. Rate us, give us some stars, let your friends know, let your family know, tell everyone you can. Go to the website bookishwithsoniawalga.com if you want to find out about any of the books that you heard about. We list there not only the five favorites, but every single book that is referenced. You can also buy the books through the website and uh, we make a tiny, tiny little percentage of whatever you buy through the website. So if you are interested, please go ahead and click on that. You can find us on Facebook. We have a Bookish with Sonia Walger page. You can find us on Twitter with at Bookish Sonia or at SoniaWalger.com. And you could also email me through the info at Bookish with page. If you hit on contact, it'll just automatically pop up as an email there. So if you have any ideas for guests that you'd like to hear from, or thoughts that you have about the show, please don't hesitate to share them there. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the show.